Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com myths for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code myths to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Quick disclaimer, there's some brief violence against animals in the story this week. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the start of the Mabinogian, a very famous, very epic collection of Welsh legends. In it, you'll learn about taking trips to the fairy realms for fun and profit, and that if the guy who you just stole a wedding from wants you to climb into his magical sack, maybe don't do it. The creatures this week are magical women who band together to help each other chase men off cliffs. This is Myths and Legends, episode 181A, Otherworld. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth the listen. Today's story is the start of a Welsh collection that I've been getting requests for since the podcast started. The collection is known as the Mabinogion, and even though it's a collection, it was really only put together after the fact, and the 11 tales that make it up are sometimes only loosely connected. The stories were written between the 1380s and 1410, but there's a lot of debate about when they're set, with the 11th century AD coming up a lot. The stories are fantastic, containing mysterious otherworldly figures, shape-shifting, massive battles, knights, kings, queens, talking animals, and more. I'm so glad we're finally getting started on this. There are four main branches, in addition to a smattering of other tales. So we'll jump in at the beginning and meet a king who just wants to go on a trip through the dark forest. Poole looked at his attendants and servants. Who was up for a hunting trip through the dark, otherworldly forest? The servants and attendants looked at the king. They were as excited as their choice was voluntary. The king started to do the math to see if that was an insult or not, but decided to just get on with it. He told his nobles and such not to wait up, and in a few hours, he was galloping across the open field, a dozen hounds running out in front of him. Poole quickly outpaced his companions, but seeing as it was their job to keep up, well, that was a servant problem. A king problem was which stag to kill. But as Poole looked out across the moors, he could see that that problem was already solved. There was a dead stag laying there, surrounded by hounds. Well, Poole was the king, and this was his land. Whoever stag that was, noble or peasant, they would hold their tongues. He looked at the dogs tearing into the dead stag. Huh, he had never seen dogs like that before, shining white with red ears. Looked cool. All right, get out of here. The dogs despite the king being the one separating them from their dinner, actually obeyed. They cleared out, and Poole's hounds started in on the stag. Uh, excuse you, Poole heard behind him. Poole turned his horse to see a man mounted on his own horse and outfitted almost as well as Poole. Poole smiled and said that he was Poole, the king of this region, 
And you are? The stranger said that he knew that, but he would not be greeting Poole. Poole blinked, uh, okay? The stranger said that it was because of Poole's lack of manners and discourtesy. Taking a man's stag and letting your own hounds feast on it. That was low. He wouldn't take revenge on King Poole, but he would bring about shame upon the man, worth the value of a hundred stags. King Poole pinched the bridge of his nose. That sounded exactly like revenge. I mean, there was even a monetary value. Look, if he had done anything wrong, he wanted to redeem his friendship according to the man's rank. But to do that, he would need to know who the man was. The stranger smiled. He was Anon, king of Anuven. King Poole took a deep breath. The magical land of eternal youth? The fairy realms? In some places, the underworld? King Anon grinned. The very same. Poole's heart beat faster. Cool. Well, now he absolutely had to make this right. And how could he help this strange king, to whom he was now conveniently indebted? The fairy king grinned. Glad that Poole should ask. Back home, in the Feylands, because once again, he was the deathless king of a magical world, he just needed someone to kill the king who lived next door. The guy was constantly fighting him. That would be enough to pay back this slight today. Poole nodded. Okay, kind of a big ask, but how could he do that? The stranger grinned. Ah, he was glad to hear that Poole was on board. The first step was already done. Poole should go look in that pool of water over there. Poole dismounted and went over to the water. When he looked at his reflection, he wasn't looking at his reflection, but that of the fairy king, Anon. Poole looked back, and he saw himself sitting atop the fairy king's horse. Anon said that he had just failed to kill Hafgan, the neighboring king, so the man would be back. In the meantime, Poole could hang out in fairyland and sleep with his beautiful wife every night. Anon was an eccentric fairyland king, so short of saying something stupid like, I'm not Anon, king of Anuvan, Poole should be fine. Poole sighed. Hang out for like, how long? He had his own kingdom to tend to. Anon cocked an eyebrow. One, slow your roll, you insulted me and your kingdom will be fine. I'll be here with fun fairy magic. Two, he comes back to challenge me once a year. So he'll be back, what is it? A year from yesterday. Poole scoffed. A year? Anon rolled his eyes. Oh, that's right. Humans had lifespans. They barely had any time on earth. They were like, I don't know, what else doesn't live very long? Elephants or tortoises. It was just a year. He got to hang out in fairyland as the king, and at the end of it, he just had to kill a rival fairy king. Oh, one pointer. When Poole fought him, only stab him once. He will beg you to stab him again, leaving himself open, but don't do it. It's a trap, and he'll recover. Anon said he probably should have guessed that the first hundred times they fought. All right. Well, time to go. He would escort Poole to the edge of his lands. Poole seeing that his choice was between angering a capricious fairy king or partying for a year as the king of a magical realm, sighed and said he was ready to go. He was as happy to help as his choice was voluntary. Well, yeah, he finally understood that. Oh, I'm so eccentric. I know I've lived here and ruled all my life, but 
Let's like go around and do names and one interesting fact about yourself, Poole said in the form of Anon. He had to admit, this gig was a good one. He spent all of his day hunting, eating, drinking, laughing, singing, carousing, which is just like saying drinking and laughing and singing again. And at night, he went to bed next to the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. His queen, well, Anon's queen, as well as they got along. And as beautiful as he found her, the last thing he needed was an angry fairy king who could turn him into a fish or something. There were plenty of beautiful women back in Wales. Each night, he would nod to her, roll over, and not move for the rest of the night. His back to the queen. The time was so fun that, before he knew it, he was surrounded by his nobles. They said that, uh, you know who was at the ford again, wanting to challenge Anam. Halfgan. Poole put down his drink. Wow, whole year already. All right, let's get this over with. As Poole strode out into the ford, seeing the heavily armed king, scarred and sneering, lumbering toward him, he grinned. This was Halfgan? Huh, maybe they should have sent the whole gan. He turned around. He knew that the nobles were supposed to laugh, but that was legitimately funny. They weren't laughing, though. They were looking behind their king with terror. Poole gasped and stepped away from the blow. Oh, we're getting started then. Poole had been trained by the best in Wales, so he knew an opening when he saw one. And Halfgan basically telegraphed that opening. Well, they didn't have telegraphs yet, so it was like he was, I don't know, leaving himself open slowly in a series of coded beeps. Poole stabbed him in the center mass, just below the ribs, and the fight stopped. Halfgan dropped his spear and shield and fell to his knees. It was over. His adversary, the fairy king, just needed to do the just and honorable thing and finish him off. Poole looked this way and that. Uh, no? Halfgan, blood dribbling from his mouth, said, but what did on me? No. Come on. He was dying. Oh, this was it. Poole said that, didn't Halfgan say that last year and the year before and however long they had been doing this? So he was going to try something different this year. He wasn't going to attack him a second time. Halfgan nodded. Well, Anon passed the test. He was going to die now. Is that what Anon wanted? Poole wiped his spear and nodded. Yes, absolutely. He didn't understand what Halfgan's deal was. He was really bad at fighting. Halfgan lost every year and only survived because Anon, I mean, he was too lazy to think about stuff. Anyway, sorry, bud. 100% not personal. Please go. I think they want to conquer your kingdom now. By noon the following day, both kingdoms were under Anoun's authority. But by noon the following day, Anoun was nowhere to be found. He was talking to Anoun, king of fairyland. I did everything you asked. I killed that guy and gave a rousing speech, and they conquered the kingdom. So, you know, congrats. I like doubled your land. <laughs> Put some miles on your body, by the way, with all the feasting and partying, Poole said. Anoun cocked an eyebrow. It was Poole's body. Did he not get how illusions worked? Anyway, thanks. A year in a dead king is just about equal payback for one dead stag. Thanks for playing. Anoun touched Poole's head, and the man was sitting atop his horse in Wales, in our world, surrounded by his hounds just as he had been the day he found that fateful stag. It was over. 
he was home. I know what you did, Poole, a voice from the shadows uttered. As soon as King Poole closed his eyes to sleep, he snapped awake, scrambling up until he was sitting in bed and staring out at the darkness. Who who was that? How did they get past the guards? And then he thought about it. Wait, he recognized that voice. Anoun, King of Anuvan, Fairyland slash the Underworld maybe, stepped from the darkness into the light of a burning candle. Anam was more serious than Poole had ever seen him, and he had been Anam for over a year. Anam said that he had talked to his wife, the woman Poole had slept with for a whole year. He needed to answer for his behavior. Poole swallowed hard, about to say that he didn't know what his queen told him, but he didn't do anything. But Anam cut him off. Uh, his behavior of being a great guy... When Anan and his wife went to bed that night, she was surprised that he was even talking to her. Poole laid on his side and didn't even speak to her for a year? Seriously, up top, man. Poole high-fived the king of Fairyland. So, he wasn't in trouble? Weird way to tell him. Anan smiled. He really liked to mess with humans. As he left, he pointed at Poole. Still, though, it was super cool that he didn't get together with Anan's wife. From now on, We're buds. Keep your eye on your inbox. You're getting something good. Poole nodded. Okay. Finally back in his kingdom, and in his own bed for the first time in a year, Poole went to sleep. Anam wasn't joking when it came to giving something good. The next day, Poole's attendants came to his chamber door. There was too much stuff. Horses, hunting dogs, hawks, straight up chests of treasure. It was all waiting for him in the courtyard. Over time, Poole and Anand exchanged all sorts of good stuff, and Poole came clean to his nobles about his time in the Feylands as their king. Anand and his otherworldly animals came to visit in Wales, and Poole went back to Anuvan to visit. Over time, the friendship between Anand and Poole became so close that Poole's former title, Poole, Prince of Devid, fell into disuse, and he was called Poole Penanuvan, Poole Head of Anuvan from then on out. The two kings, the best friends that had spent a year parrot-trapping their kingdoms because of a stag, laughed, and the realm rejoiced. We'll see Poole celebrate his good luck by immediately being tempted by a cursed mound, but that will be right after this. My lord, one of King Poole's attendants said, pointing at a mound. That mound right there, no one can sit on it without one of two things happening. Either he'll be wounded or injured. Remember that this is 11th century Wales, so that means basically dead. Or he will see something wonderful. Poole looked around him to the armed guys he had with him. You know what? He'd take that bet. He said that the feast they had planned could wait. He was climbing that hill, risking injury or death, to see something wonderful. And see something he did. Well, someone. Out there, riding on the road, 
A woman sat atop a pale horse, trotting. She wore shining, brocaded silk and just traveled slowly on her way. Poole skidded down the mound. Did anyone else see that? Who was she? Everyone looked out from the base of the mound to see the woman. Huh. Turned out the king didn't need to put himself in mortal danger to see her. They threw up their hands, though. They had no idea who she was. Poole gestured to the road. Well, these men were servants of the king, so that obviously meant being his royal wingmen. One of the nobles in better shape nodded, looked at the woman, and gauged that he could catch up with her. He took off in a run. At first, it was just a light jog. No reason to overdo things if he didn't have to. When he was running slowly behind her, he was just about to catch her, almost just a few arm lengths away from her trotting horse. So he picked up the speed, and she took off too. She didn't appear to be moving any faster, but she was farther away. So the noble slowed down. He wasn't in good shape, just the least bad shape of the assembled nobles. And his heart felt like it was pumping fire. When he slowed, though, so did she. Once again, it didn't look like the horse was changing speed, but that she was closer. With renewed drive, the noble once again took off, but as he moved faster, she got farther away. It took him a couple more rounds of this to catch on that it was magic before jogging back to Poole. Poole didn't chastise the sweat-soaked noble, but knew that this woman was as literally magical as she looked, and he ordered the fastest horse to be brought from his court. And that chase went exactly the same way. She outpaced their fastest horse's gallop with a mere trot. When night fell, and their fastest horse returned, having been worked to a lather for nothing, Poole was more determined than forlorn. Having sat atop the mound, he was supposed to see that beautiful woman. And having seen her and despite her clearly wanting nothing to do with the men chasing her, Poole was obviously meant to be with her. The next day, Poole and Co. laid on their stomachs atop the hill, doing that little binoculars thing with their hands. All right, there she was, trotting by again. Okay, so chasing her yesterday didn't work. But what if they tried chasing her? It didn't work. They wore out two horses that day and returned to court, racking their brains. On the third day, after a night of feasting and drinking, Poole held up a finger. All right, chasing her didn't work and neither did chasing her, Hear me out. What if we chase her? The nobles looked to each other and nodded. Yeah, that made sense. This time, though, Poole went. He tried trotting, cantering, and a full gallop, and saw what his men had seen. She wasn't moving any faster, but the faster he got, the farther away she was. Then he cried out to her, as his horse was about to collapse from exhaustion. Maiden, for the sake of the man you love most, wait for me. The woman stopped and turned around. Oh, hey, what's up? Poole was gobsmacked. She couldn't have just stopped three days and as many horses ago? The maiden nodded. And he couldn't have said one sentence to her before now? Poole said that she made a good point. Uh, so, uh, where are you going? What you doing? The lady said that she was going about her business. She smiled. And that business was seeing him. Ooh, the best type of business. And this is only a lightly paraphrased version of what's in the story. Poole grinned as he helped her down from her horse. And how could he help? She said her name was Rhiannon, daughter of Hivathin, and she was about to be given to a husband against her will. But she didn't want that husband. 
she wanted Poole. Poole said that if he had his choice of any woman in the entire world, he would choose her. After seeing her face, every other woman looked like, I don't know, trees? He wasn't a poet, he was a king. Rhiannon breathed. Good, wow, okay. So he should come to her father's kingdom and arrange a meeting with her. The sooner the better. A year from tonight. Poole narrowed his eyes. Huh. They definitely had a different definition of urgent. What was up with things in his life taking a year? As she mounted her horse, she told him not to worry about it. It was a trope. Nothing will happen in his life between tonight and the next year. Literally one and a half sentences. Anyway, keep your promise. And farewell. And she wasn't wrong. One and a half sentences later, Poole was readying 99 horsemen to ride to Hibbeth Hen. Because when you go to ask something of another king, you want them to know that you have 99 guys with knives in his house. The implication helped grease the wheels of it, and the happy couple was united. Poole stayed with Hibbeth Hen, and the wedding was planned for, well, the next night. They moved quickly in those days, and Rhiannon had already been engaged for a year. I mean, it had been to another guy, but, you know, details. So it came to pass that, at their wedding feast, with Rhiannon's father in the middle, and Poole and Rhiannon on either side, a tall man with auburn hair entered the hall and made a beeline for Poole. It being Poole's wedding day, he was in a good mood and happy to take any supplicants. I want to ask you a favor. The man with auburn hair stood awkwardly. That's what supplication means. Whatever you ask of me, as long as I can give it, shall be yours, Poole said with a smile. At that moment, Rhiannon's ears pricked up, and she turned to Poole. What? Why would you say that? Nope, he said it, and in the presence of his nobles too, the man with auburn hair laughed. Rookie mistake. No takesies backsies. All right. Well, his name was Gwowl. Nice to meet you. So my request, first, the ceremony is nice. I want it. It's mine now. Second, the woman that's going to be your wife today? Yep. She was promised to me before you came along, so I want her too. Rhiannon broke the silence by turning to Poole, her soon-to-be husband by choice, and saying, word for word from one translation, no man has ever been more stupid than you. He threw up his hands. How was he supposed to know that this was the man he beat out for Rhiannon's hand? So you give a blank check to anyone who asks you anything? Rhiannon sighed. Look, Poole had to honor his request, or else he would bring disgrace upon himself. Poole shook his head. No, this isn't going to happen. He's not going to give away his wife. Through clenched teeth, Rhiannon whispered, Give me to him, and I'll make sure he never has me. How? Rhiannon blinked. So Poole wanted her to explain the whole plan right now. Poole nodded. Yep. Rhiannon rolled her eyes. Okay. She would give Poole a little bag and arrange a night one year from today for her and Gwowl to be together. There will be a party first, and she would let a beggar in with that little bag. She paused waiting for Poole to catch up. Oh, that's me, got it. She continued. He would ask for food. Rhiannon would say that he could have as much as he could fit in the bag. The thing? 
even if all the food and wine of seven kingdoms was put in the bag, it wouldn't be full. Bag of holding, nice, Poole remarked. Watching all of this food and wine being emptied into the small bag, Guawal will get mad and wonder what it takes to fill the bag, to which Poole will reply that it takes an extremely powerful nobleman, the most powerful nobleman, treading on the food in the bag. When he does so, bring the bag up over his head, call your 99 warriors waiting all around the orchard, and Guawal is no longer a problem. But, okay, uh, he's here right now? Why not just call my warriors right now? Poole asked. Rhiannon threw up her hands. She didn't know. I mean, he was a guest here, even though he hadn't actually been invited. But her plan was also more dramatic and magical. Uh, so, hey, Guawal spoke up. How about an answer to my completely reasonable request of your wedding feast and wife-to-be? He asked. You guys have just been whispering back and forth to each other for like ten minutes. Rhiannon stepped forward. Poole would consent to his request, because he was an honorable man. Some caveats. One, the feast belonged to her, and wasn't Poole's to give. So she was giving it to Poole's men. Two, she would be with Gwawel one year from today. They would have a party, an orchard, and then... Well, then she and Gwawel would have some time alone together. Gwawel nodded. Sure, he was just demanding another human be his property. He would wait for this sort of thing. He would return to Hivithin one year from today. Poole couldn't believe it. Another year before they could get married? Rhiannon told him to relax. It would be even shorter than last time. Like, 15 words until they were back here. Gwawal stood looking at the beggar with the magical bag. He was quickly watching his feast disappear, and that was the thing he was second most excited about tonight. He stopped the man. Okay, hold up. What would cause this bag to be full? The beggar, who didn't look anything like King Poole, don't worry about it, said that only the strongest nobleman, one endowed with land and power, well, if he gets up and steps on the food in the bag, the bag will be full. Okay, Gual held up a finger. Let me get this straight. You're holding a magical, limitless bag, and the only way to stop my feast from disappearing inside of it is for me to get in said magical, limitless bag and stomp around a bit? You really expect me to believe that? The beggar nodded. Good, because I do believe it, Gual said, and stepped into the bag. Just a bit of stomping, and he'd get this party back on track. One cinching of the bag, and 99 warriors later, and the party was back on track. It was, once again, Poole and Rhiannon's wedding feast. There were fun games, like Badger in the Bag, which was less a game and more so warriors pretending that Gwawa was a live badger so that they could beat him while he was in the bag. Sorry, Chunt. Gwawa was let out before he was killed, on the condition that he make restitution for all he took, and never tried to seek revenge against them. The spears helped to drive the point home, and he limped to his horses. After a slightly derailed wedding feast, Poole and Rhiannon spent a night in, quote, pleasure and contentment. It was three years before they had a son, 
with Poole's nobleman remarking that maybe it was Brianna's fault, and that he should take another wife that could more quickly give him an heir. Good guy Poole said that he had married Rhiannon. He loved Rhiannon. He would not have this discussion until the end of the year. He'd give her a little more time. Then he'd remarry. Before the end of the year, though, there were cries of labor and then that of a baby echoing through the halls of Devid. They had done it. The heir of Poole and Rhiannon, and one of the central figures of the Mabinogian, was born. And he was gone. After his birth, Rhiannon was exhausted from labor, so she was out. But six women came in to help out with the baby, should he cry in the night. They were supposed to stay up and keep watch. But the good and bad thing about a baby was that they let you know when they need help. After about 20 minutes, the woman followed their master into sleep. When they awoke, the baby was gone. Rhiannon was still slumbering. Six babysitters means you get to do that. But the first woman woke up all the rest. The baby was gone. It was their one job, and newborns were not that strong. He didn't just walk off on his own. What were they going to do? One of the women stepped forward. She said she knew what they weren't going to do. They weren't going to be burned to death for letting the prince get kidnapped under their watch. She had a plan. Just outside, a staghound had given birth to puppies. They kill the puppies, smear the blood over Rhiannon's clothes and mouth while she slept, and leave some puppy bones sprinkled throughout. While one woman took care of this, the rest of them needed to do something else. Nurse Fight Club. The rest of the women looked at the one with the plan. So the answer to a child disappearance was to kill a bunch of puppies and frame the queen for cannibalism, saying she ate her own newborn? Ah, that was dark even for medieval legends. But the lead woman remarked that this was their only option, because they only had thought up one option. She said she would go get the dogs, but the others needed to pair up and start fighting. Those bruises and black eyes weren't going to make themselves. Rhiannon could hear the screaming and blinked awake. What was the point of six babysitters if she was still waking up to crying? But then she realized it wasn't the baby crying. She slowly sat up in bed. What was going on? What was smeared all over her? Wait, where was her baby? She turned to the guards who had been called, and her handmaids, sobbing on the floor. Oh, you know exactly where he is, one of the handmaids said to her. The woman's face was bruised and swollen, and she walked with a limp. You killed him. We watched you as you were all like, oh, I'm so evil, I'm going to eat my son. And we were like, no, don't, you can't do that. And you were just like, watch me after I beat you all up. And you did, and we did, and it was horrible. Wiping blood and tragically tiny bones from her dress, Rhiannon said that that story was obviously a lie. She had just given birth. And they were saying that she fought off six of them to eat her own baby? You'd have to be a complete idiot to believe that. You did what? Poole screamed as he barged into the room. To be fair to Poole, 
he did end up believing his wife. Probably. Regardless, he used what sway he had to keep the whole issue quiet, but word eventually got out to his nobles, who demanded that she be punished. Rhiannon kept her own counsel and was advised to take the punishment as long as it wasn't death. She called together the nobles, and they came to an agreement. The punishment was as follows. Outside of Castle in Narbeth, Pembrokeshire, she would sit by a mounting block, a place where travelers got on their horses and tell the story of what she allegedly did to her son, to anyone who asked. Then, she was to offer a piggyback ride to the court of the king. After one year of doing this every single day, she would be cleared and allowed to return home. Hey, you know how you've been wanting a baby? The king, Tiernan, said to his queen, who had just fallen asleep. He produced a baby wrapped in silk. Well, I got a baby. The wife rubbed her eyes. That's not how that worked. The king explained. She knew how, every year, when this one mare gave birth to a foal, the next day the foal was gone? Well, it was probably irresponsible to let money literally be taken from them every year. So he decided to camp out with a sword, and when a clawed arm came through the stable window, he cut it off at the elbow. He took off chasing it, but realized that he left the stable door open and rushed back. Right outside the stable, where the monster had been, he found the baby resting on the ground. The wife looked at the kid. Well, she was wary of the whole situation, but she fell in love with the little guy on sight. Yeah, he could stay. When the child was one year old, he was walking better than most three-year-olds, and at two, he was as sturdy and as smart as a six-year-old. At four, he was already working the stables. It was at that time that travelers passed through Tiernan's kingdom, repeating the gruesome story that Queen Rhiannon was telling all the travelers about the night of her son's birth. Then, King Tiernan thought about it. Wait, what night was that? Tiernan sat in between Poole and Rhiannon, Poole having just returned from a circuit around his kingdom, and Rhiannon having just gotten back from giving piggyback rides to smelly travelers. King Tiernan was widely considered to be the best man in the world, so they were happy to entertain him. At dinner, he pointed to a young man in his service. Hey, Rhiannon, who does that boy look a little bit exactly like? Rhiannon clenched her jaw and turned to Tiernan. Really? That kid was like 13 or something. He was going to bring up Poole's extramarital children when she had just gotten back from a punishment for losing her own? Tiernan's eyes widened. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait. The kid just looked like a teenager. He was really just four years old. He told Rhiannon the date the boy appeared. And she gasped. She smiled for the first time in four years. Thank God. What a relief from anxiety. And that his name shall be, Pindaran Devid, Poole's retired father shouted. He had been listening in. Perderi, which means anxiety. Poole turned. Good one, Dad. It was only fitting that his name should be the first thing his mother uttered when she heard of him. Rhiannon said that, yeah, but how about relief or thank God, but 
Anxiety? Really? It was too late. Poole was already calling his son to himself. What was his name? Query? Nope, not anymore. Welcome to the family, Pradary, a.k.a. Anxiety. That summer, everyone was called to his kingdom, even the king of Fairyland, to celebrate and swear allegiance to Pradary. As Pradary grew up, Poole passed on. As the kingdom in Wales came into conflict with kingdoms in Ireland and the other areas of Great Britain, those allegiances would be tested as the battle lines are drawn. That's where we're going to end it this week. Next week, we'll be continuing the stories of the Mabinogian with the second branch, the story of Bran the Blessed. As I talked about last week, Fictional is back with a new site too. So go to fictional.fm for more info. And if you like the podcast, we have a little shop. It's a fun way to help support the show, get cool stuff. And for the first time ever, we're offering something just for graduation. It's a handwritten personal message from us to the graduate in your life. Plus a few bonus gifts. Check out this and the other stuff we make at shop.bardic.fm. The creature this time is the Shishiga, from Russian folklore. The Shishigi live in a wonderful, cooperative community. They live far from humans out in the forest, completely among their own. They're leaderless, an autonomous collective, a commune that looks out for itself and its constituent members, one full of creatures happy to help their neighbors in times of need. When the call for help goes up, Shishigi go to the aid of their own, in terrifying and murdering humans. They are nude and ragged monsters with wild hair that can live in the water, the forest, or even cities, as I found in one story. And they love you. Oh, my bad. They love killing, ruining, or terrifying you. Kind of missed some important words there. They mostly target men, with men wandering around the forest drunk being their preferred target. I know no one really chooses of their own sound mind to take a drunk walk through the dark forest. So next time you're hanging out, remember... Friends don't let friends get drunk and wander into the dark forest. When they find someone they want to target, the call goes out, and the other shishigi choose whether or not they want to help. If they want to help, they follow the quest giver unfailingly. If not, they sit it out without judgment. The human, usually male, sometimes drunk, will find himself surrounded in the forest or in the water by scraggly, terrifying, naked creatures. He runs, and the hunt begins. Once the hunt starts, it doesn't end until the Shishigi complete their goal, be it death, ruin, or just terrifying the man. They might catch him and eat him, pounce and torment, or just run him off a cliff or into a cave. The only way to stop the hunt is to never start it. If you can stand up to the monstrous creatures emerging from the darkness and not take a step away, you take all the fun out of it. They'll break off, and leave the man to resume his solo walk through the dark forest, to be eaten by any of the other creatures looking for a drunk guy wandering the woods. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Are you stuck at home, feeling isolated and worried? 
BetterHelp offers online professional counselors who can help through phone or video sessions. Plus, exchange unlimited messages. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a counselor you'll love in less than 24 hours. Get professional help when you want it, wherever you are. BetterHelp is a truly affordable option. And our listeners get 10% off your first month with the discount code LEGENDS. Go to betterhelp.com legends. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye.